Welcome. My name is Brother Satyananda, and we are here in the beautiful main sanctuary of Self-Realization Fellowship Lake Shrine Temple. Our program today will be a meditation together, followed by an inspirational message from Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings in the Bhagavad Gita, God Talks with Arjuna. And then we will close with a guided meditation. I'm so happy that you could join us today. Please close your eyes and let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Bhagavan Krishna, Mahavatar Babaji, Lahiri Mahashai, Swami Sri Yukteswar, and our Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, saints of all religions, we bow to you all. O oh, beloved God, I bow to you in the temple of all souls. I bow to you in the temple of all life. Beloved God, uplift my mind, awaken my heart, inspire within me a cosmic love for all creation. Om, peace, amen. Please close your eyes and lift the gaze of the two eyes toward the single eye of the spiritual eye between the eyebrows. Feel within and all around you the presence of God and our great gurus.
Om Peace. Amen. Once upon a time in ancient India, there was a queen of Punjab. And she was a very popular queen. The people loved her. She was kind, kind-hearted, wise in many ways. And she had a deep personal devotional life. She loved to serve the poor. So she was quite an example of dharma for her age. During the warm summer months when the heat was rising on the plains, the royal family would pack up their household and they would go up into the Himalayas, the foothills where the air was fresh and cool. They had a summer palace there and the family then would spend time uh, in the mountains and enjoy uh, vacation and retreat. Nearby, in a remote location, the queen had a favorite uh, retreat hermitage where she would go. There were several wise rishis there as part of the royal entourage. And they would provide a space for the queen to meditate, to pray, to have time in solitude. And the queen always looked forward to this season of life because she enjoyed having this interlude, a spiritual interlude for meditation and prayer. She had a wonderful retreat, and as she was leaving the hermitage, she talked to the dharmacharya for a few moments, and he asked her, he said, Your Highness, how was your retreat? And she said, Oh, it was wonderful, as always. But he pressed further, and he said, How were your meditations? And she confessed, um, my meditations were very restless. I could not control my mind. Uh, my thoughts kept going back to uh, the palace uh, on the plains. And I did not find the depth of peace and devotion that I had uh, hoped for. And the Rishi smiled and he said, Your Highness, I think I have something for you that would help. And he walked away. Uh, he came back and he was brought with him a uh, elaborately embroidered, beautiful cushion, the kind of cushion that you would, you know, sit on when you're sitting on the floor, cross-legged. And he said, my lady, here is a special magic cushion. And when you go into your meditation and you take your ashan seat, um, this magic cushion, you sit on this cushion whenever you sit there and you release all your worries and concerns you will find yourself going beyond restless thoughts deep into meditation. The queen was delighted to have a magic cushion for her meditation. And so she thanked the rishi profusely. Later, she went back to her palace on the plains, back to the busy royal uh, court life. And when she had her meditations in the evening after a busy day, she followed the instructions of the rishi and she set out the magic cushion as her ashen seat. And when she sat down, she consciously released all of her worries and she went deep into meditation. Now, this is a wonderful story. And I think it's one that perhaps we can identify with. But what was the cause of success in her meditation? Was it the magic cushion or was it releasing worldly concerns? This is our challenge, isn't it? We wish we had a magic cushion that would help us to rise above all restless thoughts. We all have a great desire to meditate deeply every day. Um, we want to go beyond all of the restless distractions of daily life. But there is a strong force and I call it current emotional drama. Current emotional drama, this is the maya, the dream, illusory dream of God. And it's always changing. It seems so real now, today, this week. And yet, next week it becomes a dream. It is illusory, this is maya, the dream of God. And we blame the world, perhaps, for imposing this 
frightful or enticing dream upon our consciousness, especially when we want to sit to meditate. But Raja Yoga, Paramahansa Yogananda says, no, it's not really the world that is imposing on you. It's your attachment to the drama which keeps your mind restless. So although the theater of this life can seem very attractive at times, it is within our power to take command when the time comes for meditation. And so the message for today is really very simple. We have within us a power of free will to renounce maya in meditation. This is a spiritual skill which can be developed and used. And once we have developed this as a skill, it has a magical effect. No matter what is going on in our lives and the greater world around us, when it comes time for meditation, we can release it all and be free. Developing this skill is really essential to success in our sadhana. As a young monastic, I enjoyed long meditation on quiet weekends, uh, during retreats, uh, when my mind was free from worldly events. I would really enjoy the long meditations. But our ashram has a regular weekly meditation. It's right in the middle of the week. It's a long evening meditation. And I found these long weekday meditations to be very difficult. It was in the middle of a busy week. There was a lot going on. I was bringing a lot of the day's activities, events, thoughts into the evening meditation. And I struggled because my mind was always restless. This was a very, a very great challenge for me. And I decided I need to overcome this. One evening I was reading in the Bhagavad Gita and I came across a phrase that Master uses. And he, he uses the term renunciative will, renunciative will. The full phrase that captured my attention was this, our Guru's words. The devotee's power to invoke divinity through renunciative will. When I read these words, this simple sentence, I intuitively recognized that I could train myself to consciously and willfully release my grip on the world, on my body, on my current emotional drama, and that deeper meditation would be the natural result. So I began to experiment with this. I started by releasing consciously in the afternoon before the evening meditation, I started releasing the drama. Whatever was happening, whatever was going on, I would start to release it and say, no, I'm not interested in this. I'm not concerned about this. I'm going to let this go so that this evening I will be free. I noticed an immediate shift. I still had to fight with restless thoughts, but there was an improvement. And then gradually I learned how I could begin to release in the afternoon. By the time I got to the meditation, I would make a conscious invocation that this uh, drama of life uh, and everything that goes with it uh, was no longer of any interest to me. It no longer belonged to me. I would affirm my freedom in God. The effect totally was magical because I found that by an act of my willpower, I actually could renounce these things and I could have a better effect in meditation. There is a story, a classic story told by teachers in India of the sadhu who is walking to the Ganga for his morning bath and prayers. So as he's walking to the river's edge, he has a monkey on his back, a pet monkey. 
And the monkey is restless and he's jumping around on his back and he's playing with the turban and he's winding it around and he's chattering and he's screaming. And the sadhu walks to the river's edge and he begins to enter the river. And as he does, the monkey jumps off. And the sadhu walks into the river up to his waist. He's there in the Ganga and he begins his morning prayers. He begins chanting his mantra and he um, has a long period of peace there standing in the water. And then when he's finished with his morning oblations, he then walks back onto the bank of the Ganga, and as he does, the monkey's waiting for him and jumps back on. The teaching here is that our thoughts, our restless thoughts, are like a monkey that we carry around with us every day. And when it comes time for meditation, we need to let that monkey go so that we can be free and control our monkey mind. So this is a classic instruction for all sincere meditators. The devotee's power to invoke divinity through renunciative will, we are invoking a temporary freedom. We are assertively severing the cords which bind us to the world, for this next hour, I shall be free. Now you may be thinking to yourself, brother, you don't know my monkey mind. This seems impossible. But actually, you know, we do this every day. We do. We perform little acts of renunciative will in our routine daily life, and maybe we're not even aware of it. We do this most often when we really need to focus our attention, perhaps, to meet a deadline, and we really need to separate ourselves so that we can concentrate. Now, maybe some of you have recently uh, filed your taxes, and you know what pressure a tax form creates. And a tax form has a deadline, and there are penalties if you don't meet the deadline. And so you are in your home, your flat, and you're sitting at your table, and it's the night before taxes are due. In fact, your accountant said, please give me everything tonight so that I can file it first thing in the morning to meet the deadline. And so you're really under pressure. And as you sit to be completing the forms, your sweet little daughter comes up, daddy, 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 daddy. And you play with her and you say, oh, sweetie, you know, and you have a wonderful little time and then you have to get back to taxes. So you say, honey, just let daddy work a little while. I'll be with you in a moment. And you go back and you're starting to work on the forms. Daddy, 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 daddy. You realize you're not going to complete your deadline. You're not going to meet your deadline, complete the forms, if you indulge yourself with your daughter. And so what do you do? You pick up your daughter lovingly, you take her over to a little corner, with lots of pillows and games and so forth, and you set her down and you say, listen to me, honey, this is really important. I want you to play quietly and not disturb daddy for the next hour. Please promise me, play quietly and don't disturb me. This is really important. And then you go back and you do your taxes. Does this sound familiar? Now, you love your daughter more than life itself. You would never renounce your daughter. You would never renounce your love for your daughter. But for one hour, not now. Not now. Later. So we postpone to gain some freedom in order to concentrate on something that we really need to focus on. And we do it with those whom we love. Another example, um, you and your husband um, are classical music lovers, and the Prague Chamber Orchestra has come into town. They are performing Dvorak, and you love, both of you love Dvorak, Serenade for Strings, and you've got premier seats. So on the night of the concert, you're driving to the theater, and an argument comes up in the car. It's an old argument. Um, it's something that's never been settled. 
and the both of you go at it for a little while, and it creates tension. You arrive at the theater, you park the car, you go in, you take your seats, the orchestra is tuning up, and your husband leans over and he starts up the argument again. What do you do? You reach over and you lovingly take his arm and you say, honey, not now. Please, not now. We paid a lot for these seats. Let's enjoy the concert. We can work this out later. And he acknowledges the wisdom of it and you call a truce. This is use of renunciative will. It's simply an invocation, not now. And you make it strong and you make it persuasive. And this allows you to create an interlude of freedom. You see, we actually do this every day. Our master, Paramahansa Yogananda, uses a similar example um, with sleep. You know, we're unable to fall asleep if we are ruminating on problems as we lie in bed. You've all learned this, that if you let your mind wander onto problems, you worry in bed and you don't fall asleep. You only fall asleep when you let those worries go, and then the mind relaxes and you can drift off. Master uses this analogy. He says, just as men nightly forsake all physical and mental activities to enjoy the pleasure of sleep, so the yogi relinquishes all desire for the fruits of his daily activities to enjoy the ecstasy of attunement with God. Without vanquishing the driving ego-inspired expectations and desires, the devotee cannot enjoy the consciousness of the calm, blissful self in which all material consciousness is automatically dissolved in the union of soul and spirit without vanquishing the driving ego-inspired expectations and desires. So here our guru is uh, showcasing for us the challenge of having to consciously renounce a distracting thought pattern in order to be able to experience something more higher and sublime. So the power of renunciative will in meditation begins with a simple invocation. Not now. You are creating a spiritual interlude. This is an act of renunciative will. It's absolute, it's singular in focus, and it means only this one activity at this moment in time. During that period of my life when I was struggling with um, long weekday evening meditations, I was just beginning to get some traction and feel that I was accomplishing my goal uh, by rising beyond thoughts and meditation when I was given a big project. And the project got more and more complicated every week. And it got to the point to where um, it was almost like 24-7. My meditations were suffering. That one long meditation in the middle of the week was really suffering. I would go in and my mind would immediately be checking off the things that I had done and looking for the things that I had missed because there were very real consequences the next day. And so in my mind, I was thinking, well, this is really important. It's actually more important than meditation. I didn't realize it, but that was the priority I was giving it. As that time went on, I had no relief, and I was not making progress. And I had a meeting with Sri Dayamata, our late president, in her office. I had the privilege of reporting to her on that project, and I gave her an update on everything. Uh, obviously, she saw my frustration, and so at the end of the update, she looked at me and she said, how are you, my dear? I, don't, I didn't indulge myself often with Dayama, but I took the opportunity and I unburdened myself. And I complained and I was just feeling helpless. And as I got to the end of my litany of personal failures, I expected that she would give me some sympathy. 
but she did not. She looked at me intensely and she brought her hand down on the desk and she said, you have to learn to concentrate. Renounce your restless thoughts. Focus your mind 100% on the techniques your guru has given you. And then I remember her saying, she said, when I meditate, I am dead to this world. Now I walked out of the office invigorated and challenged. And I had a new mission. It was not to be complaining, not to be justifying, not to be wallowing in my little failures, but to rise and take command. That was the dynamic force behind her counsel. So let us now have a, a teaching from our Guru's God Talks with Arjuna. It's the Bhagavad Gita, and we're teaching from chapter six. Chapter six is one of my favorite chapters because it's all about meditation. And in this teaching, it's important to recognize that we have not just one avatar speaking, but two. We have Bhagavan Krishna speaking through the verses, and we have Paramahansa Yogananda speaking through the commentary. Um, this teaching comes in the first part of uh, chapter six. So it's between verses 12 and 26. We're going to use selected verses and commentaries. Let's begin with the words of Bhagavan Krishna. Concentrating the mind on one point and controlling the activities of chitta, feeling, and the senses, let the devotee practice yoga for self-purification. So here, Krishna is defining the purpose of our meditation. Concentrate the mind, control the emotions, practice your guru's sadhana. And now we're going to offer some verses and commentary from a very special section of chapter six. It's entitled, Attaining Self-Mastery and Control of the Mind. In the next verse, uh, Krishna uses a Sanskrit word, sankalpas, sankalpas. Uh, sankalpas uh, is a very broad word. It's a very important one for our message today because sankalpas means a plannings, um, engaging with the imagination. It even includes daydreaming. So we're addressing the issue here of planning, scheming, daydreaming, envisioning in meditation as a distraction of the mind. Krishna says, relinquish without exception all longings born of sankalpas and completely control sheerly with the mind and the sensory organs, the sensory powers and their contact with the ubiquitous senses. Relinquish, without exception, all longings born of sankalpas. And our guru says in commentary, the yogi, while meditating upon God, should not distract his attention by allowing himself to ruminate on material objects, mentally planning and replanning material activities for the fulfillment of desired ends. Our master knows us pretty well, doesn't he? He should renounce without reserve all such desires born of egoistic plannings, and he should scoop out from within all desires that are already entrenched in the subconscious mind. So now we have two avatars who are giving us some very valuable instruction on meditation and also showing us how we use renunciative will. So we are looking to control activities of chitta. This is the language of the avatars. Control activities of chitta, relinquish sankalpas without exception, renounce without reserve. This is the act of the renunciative will. And the hopeful message here is, is that we are not being instructed to renounce 
for a year, for a lifetime, for all future incarnations. We are being instructed to renounce for one hour. We walk into meditation, we sit down, we are expected in order to be successful to be able to make this act of renunciation for one hour. And so we love, we come to meditate, we sit down, we've had a busy day, we have a lot on our minds. There are important financial matters, uh, there's family situations, um, we have friends, we have problems to solve. All of these things are very important, but not now. If we can make this distinction in our mind and empower ourselves to make this invocation and really mean it, we are starting on the road toward being able to release ourselves from the current emotional drama during meditation. Now Krishna says, whenever the fickle and restless mind wanders away, for whatever reason, let the yogi withdraw it from those distractions and return it to the sole control of the self. For whatever reason, whenever the fickle and restless mind wanders away for whatever reason, that means it's not, well, there are exceptions here. So, you know, my daughter is going away to university tomorrow and I have a duty to worry about her. No, not now. There is nothing that transcends uh, the priority of peace and wholehearted focus in meditation. Everything gets the label, not now. And our guru comments, the yogi whose mind has been freed from external and internal distractions is then advised to guide his intuitive discrimination gradually inward to perceive the soul's bliss, not permitting any form of mental wandering. No matter how often the yogi's mind is distracted during meditation, he should exercise great patience. By continuous daily effort, he will succeed in establishing his mind on the joy of the soul. So one of the unique features of this particular commentary here is that the invocation we make, the invocation of renunciative will, needs to have strength behind it. If it doesn't have strength behind it, it's not going to work. The ego simply laughs. It says, right, I've got another one for you. And it goes on and on and on. So we need to have a command from the soul. Basically, it's a command from the soul. And this requires a little bit of effort and kind of training ourselves into it. Um, our guru uses an example here, um, and he calls it the authority of the charioteer. It's a very interesting illustration. Listen to what Guruji says. When a horse pulling a carriage tugs hard at the reins, through unruliness or fright and tries to bolt from the path, an experienced driver will be able to, to subdue the animal. It requires skill of both firmness and kind patience. Similarly, as often as the subconsciously excited stallion of a restless thought pulls the concentrated mind off on a tangent, the charioteer of discrimination should make repeated efforts to establish its authority. How often do we take authority in meditation? How often do we give a command from the soul? This is what Raja Yoga is all about. It's reversing the authority from the ego to the soul. And we can consciously do this by making the command, not now. And I mean, not now. With everything, no exceptions, during this hour, of sadhana. So we are empowering ourselves to make a soul command performed by the will in meditation. And finally, Krishna says in verse 25, chapter 6, with the intuitive discrimination saturated in patience, with the mind absorbed in the soul, the yogi freeing his mind from all thoughts, 
will by slow degrees attain tranquility. And it's my personal testimony that it's not as slow as we think. We start getting results right away. And the results give us great encouragement. And we realize that actually we are making quantum steps forward. We have not yet mastered the mind, but we are moving toward self-mastery. So we don't have to wait for years to become a fully disciplined Himalayan yogi. We can begin with our daily sadhana to create a Himalaya of the mind on a daily basis. And that creates the kind of freedom and interlude that we are longing for and has a profound effect on the rest of the day. In summary now, um, let us be real. Daily engagement with our current emotional drama, um, it can be exhausting. It really wears us down. And at the end of the day, uh, it may be hard to fire up the will. But you know, the beginning of our guru's sadhana is the energization exercises. And if we perform those willingly, they do more than just energize the body. They also energize the will. And we will find our willpower becoming stronger as we perform these exercises. And then, afterwards, when we come to sit to meditate, we take out our magic cushion, we sit down and make our invocation. This can wait, that can wait, but my search for God cannot wait. I have my priorities straight, O oh Lord, with this command of my soul, with the authority of my soul, I command my thoughts to be still. I command my desires and all the important things of my life to wait. They are not important right now. And then you sit and you practice the Guru Sadhana. And with that firm intention and soul command, you will see a little bit of follow-up at first, to make sure the ego gets the message. And then pretty soon, the ego will pranam and say, not now. And this is a beautiful accomplishment. It is not yet mastery, it is not yet perfection, but it is soul satisfying. This is my own personal testimony. So finally, in closing now, uh, Krishna's promise. This is from the same section of the Bhagavad Gita, chapter six. The yogi free from all impurities, ceaselessly engaging the self thus in the activity of yoga, divine union, readily attains the blessedness of mergence in spirit. And our guru is very special commentary here, one of my favorites. He says, when the yogi is able to hold his concentration steady in the state of inner calmness, he perceives the soul. By further perseverance, he enters into ecstatic bliss and realizes the spirit. The fully accomplished yogi can move about in the world of relativity, unstained by its dualities, remaining steadfastly in the blessed state of Brahma Samsparsha, the bliss of the touch of spirit. So now let us have a meditation and we will practice these principles. So now let us practice together our invocation of renunciative will. Feel a strong determination, your desire for God to be alone with God I have many important things in my life, decisions to make, people I love, worries and concerns. They are all important, but not now. Now is my time for you, O oh Lord, and only you, 
This can wait and that can wait, but my search for you cannot wait. Lift your gaze and your attention toward the kutasa. Draw a long, slow, inhaling breath. Tense the body gently. Exhale and relax. Inhale slowly. Tense. Exhale. Relax. Now with relaxation, gently inhale your breath. Exhale and release. Inhale slowly and gently. Exhale and feel. One more time. Now keep the body relaxed and motionless. Feel stillness throughout your body. Feel complete quietness within your heart and mind. Draw a slow, gentle, inhaling breath. Exhale and feel. Now begin our Guru's technique of concentration. If the mind wanders into restless thoughts, bring it back firmly, not now. Enjoy the stillness of body, heart, and mind.
Let us fold our hands and pray. Heavenly Father, Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Bhagavan Krishna, Mahavatar Babaji, Lahiri Mahashai, Swami Sri Yukteswar, our Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, saints of all religions, we bow to you all. O beloved God, in the deepening stillness of my devoted meditation, I will discover thee and feel the sweet embrace of thine immortal presence. Om Peace. Amen.